What do you think the pie of energy sources in the U.S. looks like in the year 2050? 2050 is a hard number. Come on. It's like, that's too hard to predict. But I can say in 2100, it'll be 300, maybe 500 percent nuclear, right? It'll be so it'll be 5x what we're doing today and it'll be entirely nuclear. But that's how I feel about the world, too. Like if you were an alien civilization that were to visit us at some point in the future, it would be obvious that not some of it, all of it would be nuclear. You're, I mean, you're talking about orders of magnitude, raw fundamental physics advantage. It would be asinine to think otherwise. That was Brett Kugelmas, the founder and CEO of Last Energy, who we introduced you to in the last episode and who you'll definitely hear more from in future episodes. He's, he's a good interview. Based on our first two episodes, Brett's sentiment seems right. Isn't it just obvious that we should have way more nuclear power just based on the technology that we have today? Of course, there were some bumps in the road in the 1970s until now, but if we just put our minds to it again, we can build a lot more reactors fast. Right, Julia? <laughs> if only. I am super excited to be back for episode three of this season of Age of Miracles. Last episode, we dove into the history of nuclear energy and started to unpack why the United States nuclear power build-out slowed starting in the late 70s and why it's been fairly stagnant ever since. We talked about these five factors that contributed to the demise of nuclear energy in America. One, the Atomic Energy Commission. Two, the environmental movement. Three, the economics of building nuclear. Four, regulation. And five, the disasters at Chernobyl, Three Mile Island, and Fukushima. So where does that leave us today? Put another way, if we wanted to start building gigawatts of large-scale nuclear, what would it take? I think what it comes down to, like so many things that aren't illegal, is just the economics. Is there a way to build nuclear plants cost-competitively with other energy sources, like solar and storage or natural gas plants? I don't know. Today, we're going to talk to a bunch of experts. We're going to explain how a large-scale nuclear power plant actually works. And then we're going to get those experts' take on the best ways to start building nuclear cheaply again. To be clear, for this episode, we're not going to be digging into new technologies in fission or fusion, or choosing a side in the battle between small or large nuclear reactors. We're starting from the premise of, if we just tried to implement and scale the technology that we have today, for large-scale nuclear reactors, could we do it? So we'll dig into the nitty-gritty economics of actually building plants and point out some opportunities to improve key problem areas like financing and workforce deployment. And we'll even discuss some pretty creative ideas, the kind of ideas that I love, like building floating shipyards to manufacture nuclear plants or repurposing old coal plants and putting them to work as nuclear plants. But I think the best place to start is with this idea that it's not impossible to build more nuclear cheaply. It's happening elsewhere in the world right now. If you look over at China, for example, they're building new gigawatt scale power plants for three to $4 billion each. That's pretty impressive. If you look at Vocal 3 and Vocal 4, the two new reactors coming online in Georgia right now, they're costing 31 billion in total to build. Something's off here. It's even worse than that. We can't assume that China is building plants as cheaply as they could possibly be built. When we talked to Jake DeWitt, the founder of nuclear fission startup Oklo, he made a similar point to the one that Brett made in the beginning of this piece. He used this phrase, cost physics, that I haven't been able to get out of my head since. 
you know, nuclear has significant advantages from all sorts of reasons, right? Uh, it naturally, from a, a math perspective, should be the majority of the pie uh, for all the reasons that it provides significant value in the energy it produces, um, ranging from it being reliable, from it being dispatchable. The cost, it, nuclear actually has all the cost physics, as I say, on its side. It has the lowest material footprint. Uh, in other words, it acquires the fewest kilograms of steel, copper, concrete, fuel, so on and so forth per megawatt hour of energy it produces. So it should be the cheapest source of energy that we have. And that means that there's obviously a lot of room to fully realize that potential. If nuclear fission has the best cost physics of any energy source, but is currently the most expensive to build, there's clearly room for improvement. Making nuclear cheap isn't impossible. Fission itself is an incredibly cheap way to produce energy, but building all of the things around that nuclear reaction is where things get expensive. If we want to build more nuclear power in America, we need to improve the economics of building new reactors. It's as simple and as complex as that. The complexity stems from a Gordian knot of three main intertwined issues, each of which has its own sub-issues, construction, financing, and regulation. The hard part is that all of them are connected. The longer the construction takes, the more the utility has to pay in financing costs without generating revenue, stacking debt on debt on debt. And because projects, including their financing costs, are so expensive and so unpredictable, utilities have a hard time underwriting and deciding to buy them, which means that we build fewer plants and don't gain the efficiencies from experience that higher volume implementations benefit from. That makes construction slower, less predictable, more error prone, and more expensive and then we don't build them. It's a downward spiral. The result of this tangled mess is an enormous gap between the cost physics and the construction reality. The energy source that has the potential to be the cheapest is the most expensive to build. In Walter Isaacson's new book on Elon Musk, he talks about Musk's idea of an idiot index. Basically, it calculates the ratio of a product's final cost compared to the cost of its raw materials. A high idiot index, something like a 10 to a 1, or as he said for rockets, something like 50 to 1, meant that there was something wrong and therefore something that could be fixed. So what's the idiot index for nuclear? By that metric, Isaiah Taylor, who's the founder of Valor Atomics, thinks nuclear is ripe for rethinking. We're like not even in the same world with, with nuclear construction. Like it's, it's almost like impossible to even talk about that. It's, it's as bad as like 99 to 1 in a lot of cases. How can we get back to building nuclear plants faster in order to bring down costs so that we can build even more nuclear plants? Like, how do we get those experience curves that solar and wind have going for them to work for nuclear? And to answer that question, we're going to get back to basics. So we, we hooked you with some of the nuclear myth busting. We talked about anti-nuclear advocacy. Now we hope that you're nuke-filled enough to just dive into the nitty-gritty with us because this is where this battle is going to be won or lost. And to start, we're gonna do a quick refresher on the miracle of what generating electricity from splitting atoms is all about. We wouldn't be a very good nuclear podcast if you didn't understand at least a little bit about how nuclear fission works and how nuclear power plants actually produce electricity. We talked to Josh Wolf. He's a managing partner at Lux Capital, and he thinks that nuclear needs a rebrand. People are supportive of using the wind, the sun, and the water to generate electricity, but they're forgetting about the rocks. Everybody loves solar. It's a beautiful thing. The sun is abundant. You've got a fusion reactor in the sky. 
and we've developed the semiconductors to be able to convert that into electricity in a usable form. Uh, electric cars are great. Electric cars are the future. Electrification of homes is a beautiful thing. So we love solar. We love wind. Wind is great. It's abundant. Pressure differentials from temperature caused by the sun, abundant electricity, but also very expensive and capital intensive. We love water, hydro, hydroelectric, you know, also abundant. The only piece we're missing are rocks. And there's these beautiful rocks and some of them have uranium. And if you can release the uranium, it's just this wonderful power. So sun, wind, water, and rocks. And there's elemental energy. Uranium has so much baggage attached to it at this point, but really it's just rock. But what makes this rock so special is that the element it's composed of, this uranium, is the heaviest naturally occurring element on Earth. And because it's so heavy, as heavy as nature is willing to get, it's actually the most prone to splitting apart when it's bombarded with neutrons. And that releases energy in the process. Well, I can go straight into uranium for why I eventually figured out I got so addicted to nuclear energy, which is the idea that with just the metal, available to us on the Earth's crust and in the oceans. We can power a prosperous civilization until the sun expands and blows off the atmosphere. By that time, if we haven't gone to space, we don't deserve anything else. That's Mark Nelson, the nuclear advocate we met in episode two, and a big fan of uranium. He explains what happens in a fission reaction with uranium, which leads to huge amounts of energy being created. The uranium nucleus is the heaviest one that we've got. And here's the thing, it's heavy and it stays together, but if you can knock it a bit, if you can jiggle it, if you can dislodge it, you can split it. If you can get it to split, the two halves suddenly don't want to be together extremely much and they slide apart at extremely fast speeds, very, very fast, like shotguns. If you could move along them with a little scale, a little atomic scale and weigh the pieces on your way, like a mobile truck weighing station where you can weigh something at speed, you would find that there's just as much mass there, basically, as before you started. But those particles don't keep moving. They start smashing into things. They're big chunks of, of matter, these, these nucleuses, relatively speaking, on the subatomic scale. And they're slamming into things, and they're just knocking the crap out of everything. Then that's going to leave a lot of vibrating molecules and atoms. We call that heat. So the process of these two chunks slowing down leaves everybody a little hot and bothered in your local metal, in your local uh, ensemble of atoms. If you then take your scales and you measure your particles at rest, what you'll find is that your measurement when they were moving is now a little different. When you're now slower, much, you know, all the way down to the speeds of normal molecules bouncing around at only a bit hotter than room temperature, then what you find is that you're missing mass. The mass has been lost as energy. And that energy is really, really large compared to messing around with the, say, electron configuration of atoms. What do I mean by that? Combustion. So fire versus fission. When you burn one molecule of methane, you get about 10 electron volts of energy out of that. How much is an electron volt? It's also really small, but you add it up over the number of molecules you have, and it's a lot. But when you split one uranium atom, by the time the bouncy's done, by the time you account for various losses, you're ending up with 200 million electron volts of energy added, added to the world 
lost from mass. And that 200 million versus 10 is what you're playing with and why the uranium and thorium we have on this planet can get us through to the end of our star. That enormous yield, 200 million electron volts versus 10, is what makes nuclear fission such an efficient way to generate electricity. To reiterate the comparison Mark makes here, when you burn one molecule of methane, like what happens in natural gas or coal, you get 10 electron volts. When you split one uranium atom with fission, you get 20 million times more electron volts. Think back to your high school physics class, E equals mc squared. I know this is basic and might feel contrived, but it's the most important formula for maybe in physics and certainly for this season of Age of Miracles. Mass and energy are the same thing. And because the speed of light squared is an absolutely enormous number, a little tiny bit of mass contains an absolutely enormous amount of energy. One kilogram of mass, about the size of a liter water bottle, could power New York City for five months. The question is, how to convert it? And that's where nuclear reactors come in. Essentially, the energy produced by the fission reaction comes in the form of heat. And that's just the physics. It would happen no matter what type of reactor we put the fuel rods into. And it could even happen without man-made reactors at all. The Oklo uranium mines in Gabon, Africa, operated as natural reactors roughly two billion years ago. And they cycled on and off as water levels fluctuated in the mines. And the heat from those reactors actually melted the surrounding sandstone into glass. So we still have evidence of these reactors underground out there today. Think about it, that's zero capital costs. So like, how do we go from those natural reactors in Gabon to what we have today? Can you, I'm gonna ask some questions here, but like, how does a nuclear plant work? How do you turn splitting uranium into electricity? Yeah, I mean, the most basic way is that you're producing heat, as we talked about, from that fissioning. And that heat can heat up water, creating steam, which turns a turbine. And then those turbines are the same thing you'd see in, let's say, a natural gas plant or a coal plant. And that is what generates electricity. And so that's how you have these nuclear power plants powering, you know, a million plus homes from a single plant. It's just so much heat, so much power that's able to be generated there. That doesn't sound like that overwhelmingly complex or costly either. Maybe it makes sense to just talk through the economics of a nuclear plant and start unpacking where things get expensive, where we go off the rails. Yeah, let's do it. And again, we talked in the beginning about how there's a lot of this cost is actually just in the building of the plant up front and everything that goes into that. We we really don't have a workforce. We're, we're building these at this point like once every 10 years. Like that is hard to do well. We're not coming down any sort of cost curve right now. Um, but the actual operating of the plant it is you know, much cheaper. The, the fuel itself is incredibly dense and it's not particularly expensive. And so if you look at the operating budget of a plant, the fuel itself is a much smaller percentage than it is, let's say, say a, a fossil fuel plant, which is, you know, 40 to 70% of the costs are from the fuel itself, which is actually, you know, those prices also move around as we know. And so while nuclear isn't technically renewable, like, you know, free from the air, like we have with wind or solar, um, we do need to mine it and process it. It is so much closer to the renewable side because it's actually incredibly abundant. And as we talked about, really energy dense. And so I mean, I think it's just such a great source of fuel. There's just so many benefits to it for those reasons. Nuclear is also unique among all these energy sources um, in that 
again, going back to how much it costs to build the plant, it's those financing costs associated with building it that uh, make it such so expensive, right? People are worried for, for good reason about these projects getting finished. And so the interest rates are quite high. And if they go on for years and if they have delays, uh, you're paying even more interest on top of that because you're not paying your debt back on time, right? Um, and so we talked about capital costs earlier. These are kind of the the killer here, hidden in the weeds, um, that end up making these nuclear power plants so expensive and so slow. I want to turn it over now to, to Nick Torin. He's the author of What is Nuclear.com. We met him in the last episode, too. Um, he's got a great guide to the economics of nuclear power on his website. And uh, we asked him to give us, you know, what's the TLDR on nuclear power plant economics? There's a couple different ways of looking at the economics. So, like... Um if you look at sort of the levelized cost of electricity, the big, the biggest component of a new build is in the especially in the West where there's not super cheap state financing is the is the mortgage. Like when you get a loan to build a huge capital project and now you're paying interest on this loan, that's like more than half of the total cost of the plant. And like then the the direct services, engineering services, and labor are other big chunks. It turns out like concrete, steel, and equipment is like. 20% of the total cost of the reactor. It's kind of interesting. And so then, you know, the longer the construction goes, the, the more that interest uh, just weighs on you. And you have to pay that loan off with your electricity sales for however many years. Um, so that's the biggest challenge. That that high capital cost is the biggest challenge for a new reactor. A lot of the fleet, the large fleet that's out there now, most of it is paid off. Like they were built many years ago and they are, they're no longer paying off their construction. Nick points out that the materials cost about 20%, but that's far more than the actual raw materials themselves. Regulation requires all materials to be nuclear grade with extensive quality assurance processes, far more than any other industry, even something like aviation that's flying humans around. Brett breaks it down for just one material input, concrete. People love to like cite this number. Well, look, $2 billion out of that $10 billion was spent on concrete. Well, no, no, it wasn't. The concrete itself cost a small fraction of that. But the regulatory requirements on how do you pour the concrete. And then, by the way, with the Vogel plant, when they poured it just a little bit wrong, when they put that rebar an eighth of an inch off instead of, you know, uh, a quarter of an inch off, and a, and a regulator came up and put a little flag on that, they made them tear up a billion dollars of concrete. Then, you know, critics of nuclear might look at, they're citing facts, right? They're citing statistics. Look at the amount that was spent on concrete, but they're not telling the whole story. It's not like there's that much concrete. The concrete just cost a hundred times as much on a per volume or per mass basis. To do some rough back of the envelope math here, materials at something like 10 to 100x what they cost for you and I to buy, account for 20%. Fuel is 5, 10, maybe 15% operating the plant with management, security, et cetera, is 15%. Then you throw in the regulatory compliance, so the licensing fees, waste management insurance, that's another 10%. Construction costs like design, labor, land acquisition, 15%. And then you're left with financing costs at the end, 25% at a minimum. And you even see that go all the way up to 40 or even 50%, depending on how delayed the project is. I mean, where is a utility going to come up with $30 billion to pay for something like this, right? And as the costs are unpredictable and every day you delay, you add some more debt that you have to repay, it really just becomes this snowball. This is a dumb question. You mentioned utilities coming up with the $30 billion, but 
I guess, again, this is part of my job here. I'm going to ask the dumb questions. Who's actually paying all of these costs? Like, who's the buyer of a large nuclear reactor, the person or the entity that says, I would like to order a nuclear reactor, please? Not a dumb question at all. And it, it really gets to the heart of the issue here. Power utilities are both the buyers of large nuclear reactors in the U.S. and they're the project developers. So they're responsible for bringing everything together. At Vogel, for example, uh, which is part of Georgia Power, a subsidiary of Southern Company, they ordered a Westinghouse AP1000 reactor. They paid for it. We've mentioned Westinghouse a few times, so let's take a moment to talk about who they are exactly. Westinghouse has been involved in the nuclear industry since the development of the first commercial pressurized water reactor. Since then, they've developed various generations of PWR technology, which is widely used in nuclear power plants around the world. One of Westinghouse's most notable reactor designs is the AP-1000, an advanced PWR reactor used all over the world. China has four of these AP-1000 reactors in operation and six under construction. Ukraine has nine contracted and India has six. Back to Vogel. So Southern Company, they were on the hook for actually putting it on site, building all of the shielding, the infrastructure around the project. And then they were on the hook for the costs and the time overruns. And ultimately, they actually passed that price back on to their customers over time who eventually consume that electricity. And that's the bet you're making as a utility, that by investing in a new plant today, you're going to meet the future demand for electricity profitably. You might be thinking about some other plants that are scheduled to be decommissioned in the next few years. You're thinking about, um, you know, this, this long time horizon here, decades long. And after considering all the costs that might go into getting that plant operational, uh, you know, you're thinking about operating that well into the future. This typically works well in, in regulated markets, right? And we, we've talked to some people about this, but it gets gets a lot harder in deregulated markets. You mentioned the long time scales and the regulated, deregulated. Like when I think of utilities, I think of these big organizations that can think on like 50 year time horizons and they know that they have, you know, like they can say, uh, this is what our electricity costs now and people have to pay whatever they say it is. And so it's like pretty much as good as just a bond uh, investing in, in a utility company. But I think that distinction is an important one that I didn't fully appreciate coming in between the regulated market and the deregulated market, right? Like in the regulated market, I think the way that I think about it is that it's the one that I think of, right? It's that you have a cost of electricity and you say, sorry, rate payer, if you live here, this is what you have to pay. Deregulated markets, on the other hand, they have to compete on price. And so if you make the wrong calculation, there's energy traders out there and, and like real market forces to just say, whatever the cheapest cost of electricity is right now is kind of the cost that we're going to use. Is that the right way to think about that? And like, how does nuclear play in to a deregulated market versus a regulated market? No, that's exactly right. I think it's it's really challenging for nuclear to fit well into deregulated markets. And if you actually, again, look internationally, again, China and South Korea, great examples. These were all top-down, federal government-driven, perhaps largely subsidized, honestly, too. I, I doubt they're paying much in interest costs, for example. And that, that helps, right, when you have capital coming from a, a large centralized place. Whereas if you're a small utility, you're competing on the market for producing power that's getting purchased in an open market. You want to have that power production be as cheap as possible. So what are you incentivized to do? You're incentivized to build things with shorter ROIs, like natural gas power plants or even solar farms. And um, I think that's what makes it really difficult for 
for these utilities to go out and make this huge bet on a nuclear power plant. I mean, d- people joke that like <laughs> nuclear has been called the utility killer for a reason because actually utility utilities have gone out of business because of their attempts to build a nuclear power plant. It's just so expensive. If they don't make it there, they're, they're dead in the water. So if we want more nuclear in the U.S., we're going to have to convince utilities that they need to start ordering more nuclear reactors. And maybe they'll go get help from a developer or someone else, but that's the challenge here. And let's turn it over to Emmett Penny to explain why. Okay, I can tell you right now, no investor-owned utility is looking at the Vogel experience and it's like, bro, sign me up, dog. <laughs> I definitely want to deal with that bullshit for the next like 15 years, you know, even if it's only 10. Like they don't want to do that. So I mean it's steep. Yeah, maybe some project financing could be there. I mean, part of it's also that, like, you know, when you go to do a major project with this, you basically have to go through the cost disease progressivism. Let's say we go to subsidize nuclear, right? We're like, yeah, we want more nuclear plants. But then the regulatory environment makes it so that that's really hard to do. Well, then where does the money go? Like the money goes to two teams of lawyers who are going to bore it out in court about whether or not we can do this. And that will drive up the costs of the overall project that have nothing to do with getting it built, right? James Krellenstein made a similar point. There are real people at the utilities on the hook for ordering these projects and As it stands, dealing with the complexities of a nuclear project just isn't a very appealing prospect. We talk about Vogel 3 and Vogel 4. We started construction on four AP-1000s in the United States. We're finishing two of them, right, which is Vogel 3 and 4. But there's also Summer 2 and 3 in South Carolina that are now a rusting heap of rebar and piping and concrete, $9 billion worth of, in South Carolina. Not only did that experience cost the ratepayers, and the ratepayers will still be paying that $9 billion probably for decades in South Carolina off, right? Increasing their power bills literally for a rusting heap of concrete and steel, but it destroyed the company that ordered it. The company that ordered it, a South Carolina company, the lead order of, of the group of utilities that ordered it, a company called Scana, doesn't exist anymore and was sold at a fire sale to uh, another utility. And even worse than that, the CEO and the chief operating officer of that company who was involved in building Summer 2 and 3 lied to the Public Utility Commission in South Carolina under oath in an attempt to keep the project alive, thinking, if you believe him charitably, we would ultimately engineer our way out of that and we just need to keep on that that path and keep on building that plant. And that didn't actually happen. We obviously abandoned the plant. They both got caught lying and they're serving time in prison right now because of that. And we don't want to talk about this, but let's just be honest, right? Because I mean, one of the things that I think all of us are probably physicists or engineers by background, one of the things that has been drilled into us is if we're going to solve a problem, we need to accurately identify the problem. And so if you want to accurately identify the problem, now, now imagine yourself, you're a utility executive right now. And you watch Summer 2 and 3 and your colleagues, who you knew maybe even, go to jail because they ordered this. And then you imagine Vogel 3 and Vogel 4 which is Southern Company and Georgia Powers, you know, immense credit. They they persevered through a decade plus of what was in, from what I understand, somewhat of an unending nightmare of getting this plant online. And it was only 
depending on how you calculate the math, you know, 10 to $15 billion over budget and only a couple years over, over, over schedule. And then you're going to say, oh, you should just turn around and do another one. That's tricky. You're trying to convince someone to do something that maybe on paper is more expensive and is riskier and more subject to cost overruns. And oh, by the way, if you do it wrong and lie about it, then you shouldn't lie. But if you do it wrong, you end up in jail. But I do love that line from James. If we're going to solve a problem, we need to accurately identify the problem. We've touched on a number of mini problems that have slowed nuclear's growth and that make it so challenging to build a nuclear. Nipa reviews, the fact that anyone with access to a lawyer can sue a project to a halt and balloon costs, like that's a huge problem. The fact that our workforce isn't well-trained for nuclear plant builds is a huge problem. Long, unpredictable timelines are a problem. The nuances of deregulated electricity markets present a problem. But of course, every way to make electricity at massive scale has tons of operational problems and known challenges. And yet, we built a ton of new solar farms, lots more oil and gas. So these challenges don't explain away the underlying problem or excuse them. You still need to solve them. If we want to cut the Gordian knot at the heart of nuclear stagnation, we can identify an even simpler problem at which to swing our sword. We need to fix the economics of building a plant and or provide financing solutions that make it more comfortable for an executive at a utility to order more plants. I think that's right. If you look at the landscape today, after Vogel 4 comes online, there are no new nuclear plant projects on the docket. None. And if we want to hit our emissions goals, let alone get to a point of energy abundance, we need to fix that. Packy, how do we how do we build more large nuclear reactors? What have we started now to hear from different people about the path forward? Thanks for listening so far. Hang on, we'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsors. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. So unfortunately, there's uh, no silver bullet. I think the experts that we've spoken to have offered a number of different solutions. But as far as large nuclear projects are concerned, they all do come down to decreasing the costs and therefore the risks for the utilities and their executives. There are a number of different ways that we can do that, right? Everything from the government to just insure everything and back up all projects, kind of like they do in, in China and South Korea, all the way to like, we need a war effort for nuclear or we need shipyards where we just churn out large reactors and send them throughout the country. There are a number of different solutions here. The fact of the matter is we need a lot of big, boring, beautiful large reactors if we want to meet our emissions goals and provide clean, reliable baseload power to the grid. And that's not, I think, what you and I would have said kind of coming into this, right? That it's just this economics, this cost problem that we need to figure out. It, it is kind of as simple as that. It's not an innovation issue. The technology is around. It works. Um, it's just been shunted in this weird mix of historical, cultural, yes, some economic factors that we talked about in episode two. 
But we have a great solution here, and nuclear is an, in and of itself a fantastic technology. It's just been under leverage, and we need to remember how to actually go implement it. As we think through the solutions here, like one of the fun parts, if we're breaking the fourth wall of figuring out how to do this podcast, and one of like the fun parts of my job generally is figuring out how to explain complex topics, and this one seems like a particularly hard one, right? Like we make it sound simple with economics, but there's so much that goes into that. Do we start with financing costs specifically because they're the biggest cost? Or do we go in on regulation where the Alara or as low as reasonably achievable policy has plants spending millions, if not billions on anything that could possibly lower the risk of radiation exposure, which might sound good in theory, but not if a lot of it is essentially safety theater. Think like the TSA for energy. And if these costs contribute to nuclear not even being viable, we're unnecessarily missing out on a fantastic source of carbon-free energy. Totally. Or do we focus on shoring up the supply chain, which has atrophied over time? I mean, if you're only building a new plan every 10 years, that's not a great business for those vendors. And they're going to have to start charging you a lot more for, for, for the products that you need to put the plan together. Do we focus on construction? Who develops these large reactors? How do we get better at building them? It's hard to entirely blame regulators when a lot of the Vogel delays are actually, if you look at it, can be chalked up to pretty bad project management. And you got to clean up your own house first. We've had this ongoing open question with each other, with guests about whether nuclear is compatible with free markets at all. In China, Russia, even South Korea, the government can say we're building more nuclear and it just happens. Here, we have this tough mix of free markets on one hand, but stringent regulation on the other that makes it challenging to build. I think we have to assume here that free markets can work. But I think maybe the best place to start is making sure that nuclear is actually on a level playing field with other energy sources. We spoke with the incredibly competent and energizing Julie Kozaraki in the Department of Energy's Loan Program Office about how market forces impact nuclear energy's ability to compete with other energy sources. Julie works with Jigger Shah, the director of the Loan Program Office, or LPO, who you may have come across on Twitter or LinkedIn. The LPO has over $300 billion in loans and loan guarantees available to help deploy large-scale clean energy projects. Something that has consistently put nuclear at a disadvantage is an undervaluing of the benefits that nuclear provides for a resilient decarbonized grid. And so a piece of framing that we always like to remind folks, anytime Jigger posts about nuclear on Twitter or LinkedIn, more than half the comments are folks saying, you know, why are we wasting money on nuclear when solar is right here? And it's like, well, it doesn't really matter if nuclear is never as cheap as solar because it is providing such a different you know, set of services to the grid. Nuclear does need to compete with solar paired with very long duration energy storage. But when you look at some of the cost estimates for, you know, really long-term intraday storage that would make variable renewable generation actually on par uh, with nuclear generation, you actually see that nuclear is likely pretty cost competitive with some of those, as I mentioned, you know, those other clean firm options, renewables with long duration storage or natural gas with carbon capture. I mean, similarly, although natural gas on an LCE basis, like solar or wind, is very competitive. Once you're, if you are pricing in the decarbonization benefits of carbon capture, you are similarly looking at a technology that's got to be demonstrated and deployed at scale, come down the cost curve. Uh, in the case of nuclear, we at least know that the, <laughs> we've got, you know, decades of operating experience on the reactors. If you just look at the price tag for building solar, you'll see that it does look a lot cheaper than building nuclear. 
However, it doesn't account for the lack of reliability or intermittency, as we discussed earlier. If you build in the long-duration storage, like batteries or carbon capture, you're looking at something much more expensive than just the solar panels themselves. And these technologies aren't fully developed or deployed yet. A very small percentage of solar farms in the U.S., for example, are coupled with long-duration storage. Most rely on natural gas peaker plants that turn on and off, depending on where there's sunlight and what the grid demand is. Yeah, the undervaluing of the reliable 24-7 nature of nuclear energy does seem to be a big issue here. If we believe that reliable grid-scale power is a common good, it does beg the question of whether the government, state, or federal should be playing a bigger role in setting standards or just incentives around reliability. Exactly. And if you just left it to the free market, you might find that it all shakes out that everyone just has to keep a backup generator at their house to use during blackouts. And speaking of generators, sales are up 250% since 2017, and the reporting on it points to grid reliability issues being the driver of those increased sales. So we have heard from Julie about how market incentives don't necessarily point to new nuclear. Now let's hear about how she sees the challenges around actually building more nuclear power plants. And the question remaining is just, can we um, figure out a way to manage mega project construction such that we can bring them in reasonably on time and on budget? You know, I think that there probably is some piece around actual market reform that might be required in order to make sure that it's not just the rate-basing regulated utilities who are looking at new nuclear, but that folks in deregulated markets are able to actually get compensated for and show the value that nuclear is providing to the grid. And I really hope that it doesn't take folks experiencing blackouts to realize that it is worth investing in resiliency. And I know that it is, I think, particularly because we're in a very exciting stage now where we are incrementally adding more and more renewables, I worry that there may be a tipping point beyond which each incremental level of renewables you are adding gets more expensive or more difficult or leads to less reliability. And I, we need as many renewables as we can possibly have. And I think nuclear is the one of the best complements we have to successfully deploying renewables at scales. But it's some of those second order implications around the land use, around the transmission, around the jobs benefits that I think that we haven't, the conversation hasn't necessarily moved to what the realities of call it, you know, an 80% truly deeply decarbonized, mostly renewable system would look like. You know, the NREL Clean Future Study, for example, that looked at what an all-renewables path would look like, there's sort of a very tiny footnote that says that it would require tripling the transmission capacity in the U.S. And if there is anything as difficult to build as nuclear power plants, it is transmission. Julie's perspective is so interesting here because the DOE Loan Program Office doesn't have a horse in the race. Its job is to accelerate energy transition investments by providing the cheapest loans possible to American companies working on the transition, whether it's building solar farms or batteries or specific pieces of the nuclear supply chain or even the reactors themselves. They had a $12 billion loan guarantee backing up the Vogel project. She highlighted the non-negotiable need for nuclear in the transition. And she pointed out again and again that while they're willing and ready to support these projects, the actual loan applications themselves just haven't been there. As we, as we talked about before, there are no new large-scale nuclear power projects on the docket right now. 
She and Jigger Shaw, who she mentioned, who runs the DOE's loan program office, have both repeatedly called out the private sector for not bringing them enough projects. There's a really good episode of Jigger on the Decoupled podcast where he just lays into the nuclear industry. You know, he just says, you guys need to actually start building because we're here to provide you the loans, but uh, no one's showing up to come get them. It was crazy in that, right? Like... I mean, we'll we'll put the link in the show notes and the resources doc, but I've never heard a government official, uh, you know, in a conversation with kind of somebody representing the private sector, just kind of so clearly say like, hey, I think all of you are overcomplicating this. Like we are here, fill out the applications. I know it's a lot of pages, whatever, but like we're here with billions of dollars waiting for you guys to get your act together. Come and get the money. Yeah, right. It's 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 sitting there and it's waiting. Um, I will say this: before the IRA, which which came out last year, there were so many subsidies for wind and solar. I think the I think the number there is about like twenty seven times as much as nuclear, um, for for nuclear being actually much larger percentage of our of our grid, right? And um, finally, for the first time, there are now some subsidies for nuclear. So we're starting to level the playing field. It's not quite completely equal, but I, I'm hoping that, again, it's these types of incentives that might start to, to move the needle here. Yeah, and the, the cool thing about talking to Julie was that because she sits in her seat uh, kind of inside the federal government, they can talk to all of the industry executives and figure out what's actually holding them back. And they actually recently surveyed the executives on why they weren't ordering more projects or submitting more applications to the LPO. And one thing came up more than anything else. We often hear utilities and other customers say that they need to go to their boards, their shareholders, and their public utility commissions to get permission to move forward with new nuclear projects. And I think that as, you know, as grateful as we are for the perseverance of the folks at Southern Company on Vogel, the cost and schedule overruns at Vogel have had a strong cautionary effect on a lot of folks. And I think that we have heard a couple of things. One was a you know very compelling answer to the question during the researching of the liftoff report around what would it take for you as a utility to move forward with, with new nuclear? And the response was effectively cost overrun insurance. And they said that, look, you know, we are looking for the government or some third party to help share in what they see as potentially, you know, almost unbounded cost overruns. And a very interesting draft structure was basically, hey, if we as a utility were to move forward with a $2 billion reactor, we could cover up to 50% of that overrun, so up to $3 billion. They were like, past that, could we maybe split it 50-50, such that if the total cost were to run to $4 billion, God forbid, um, the government could perhaps, or a third-party insurer or some other party, first loss capital, could help provide some level of forgiveness on $500 million, such that the total cost to ratepayers would be $3.5 billion versus four. And so I think some of those more innovative risk-sharing measures um, are often what I hear from utilities and other customers that they say they will need to move forward. Because as huge as LPO's potential uh, loan authority, you know, over $300 billion, it is debt that has to be repaid with interest. Very, very competitive interest, but often hear from folks that effectively debt may not be enough, given that we are looking at first and early-of-a-kind projects where we don't have that cost certainty. So I think that moves into some more creative risk-sharing mechanisms might be what it takes to break through that stalemate that we're at right now. It's free markets with a backstop. Julie told us that given the size of the numbers at play, the federal government would have to have a large role to play in overrun insurance, which would likely require legislation. 
This is a reason the popular support is important. Call your representatives, folks. But she and others we spoke to also said that we should do what we can to minimize overruns in the first place. The most resounding refrain there was that we need to build lots of the same reactor over and over again. Probably the Westinghouse AP1000, which we just use at Vogel, which is a 1000 megawatt reactor. And we need to keep building it so that we get better at it and we come down that cost curve. And we need to start now while we have the workforce that just got trained on the Vogel project looking for work. Julie talks a little bit about that workforce. A huge component of the nuclear supply chain is going to be the workforce that we need to deliver that. And that's not just nuclear engineers. That is a number of skilled um, craft and trades folks. And it's going to be tough to be able to make a compelling case to folks that they should move their career towards training in those industries if we can't point them towards a clear path with a lot more nuclear in our in our future. And I think that one thing that we are particularly grateful for the folks at Southern Company and Georgia Power for are upwards of 13,000 people uh, went through and were trained up working on Vogel. And I really hope that there is soon a path for those folks to be working on new nuclear projects such that we can take advantage of the workforce we've trained up here, here in the U.S. Nick Torrin talks a little bit about the workforce coming out of Vogel as well. I mean, we just built these Vogel reactors and that team of people who can build AP-1000s. And now the AP-1000 design is complete, like it's actually been built. It's actually turned on. So it's very much de-risked, both technologically and regulatory. But like just getting someone somehow to like say, oh, yeah, I'm going to take that team of people and that supply chain and build the next big one. And But like having seen how much of a struggle it's been. I feel like that would be the best bet is to just somehow, I don't know, get some consortium of utilities, which is how we did it in the old days. I mean, we did 10 different utilities, small utilities, built the first PWR at Yankee Row. And so like just getting, I don't know, somehow coordinating an effort like that to say like, let's just build the next big light water reactor, I feel like is the most like sure thing. Wait, And it's really getting those, you know, the serialized construction is where you start seeing benefits in, in overall cost. So Nick is proposing two important ideas here. First, he suggests pulling together a consortium of utilities to share the burden of developing a new reactor the way they did at Yankee Row. If you're not familiar with Yankee Row, I'll forgive you, I wasn't either. It was one of the first commercial nuclear power plants in the US. It came online in Massachusetts back in 1960. Back then, since pressurized water reactors were such a new technology, 10 small New England utilities came together to form the Yankee Atomic Electric Company. They pooled resources and shared risks. They each contributed their own expertise. They banded together to have a stronger voice with the regulators. They actually jointly managed the project, which I can't picture working with 10 utilities today, but. 1960 was a different time. And they secured better financing with their collective balance sheets than they would have alone. Plus, they achieved economies of scale by building one large reactor instead of 10 small ones. It seems like it would be hard to pull that off today, but I like it. Yeah, I do too. It addresses a lot of the challenges that utilities still face today. And while those risks should have probably been mitigated over the last 63 years, they really haven't been. It's almost an admission that we need to go back to the beginning to then go forward. But we do have a little more momentum now, and this is where Nick's second idea comes in. He thinks that we should just pick up a design that's been approved, and the team that recently built it at Vogel, and just keep building them over and over, getting a little bit better each time. That's what he means by serialized construction. And that rhymes with how Julie is thinking about addressing the problem. 
I asked her what the world looks like when we order the same reactor five or 10 times and how we get to a place where we have the confidence to make those big orders again. And she pointed to a shining example happening overseas. That world is South Korea because South Korea did exactly this. Um, they picked one design, the APR 1400. They stuck with it, they got really good at it, and they brought the cost down, I mean, on the order of $2,300 a kilowatt. Um, but what's key is that you really have to get up to exactly, you say, that critical mass of call it five to 10. And um, that's important for a number of reasons because it first of all helps you build up the supply chain confidently that we talked about earlier. It gives you enough at-bats to actually um, come down the learning curve. It is interesting that in the U.S., you know, I think we we're going to have a bit of a tension between the fact that we're, we need a number of designs to succeed at scale. And we've got to try out a number of designs, but ultimately there is likely going to have to be some consolidation of designs such that we don't have onesie twosies of different designs proliferating. And I think it's important to note that there are different market niches such that, again, multiple and quite different designs will need to be successful. Because if you think about traditional electricity scale generation, that's going to be a quite different set of technologies potentially from the high temperature heat that you're providing in industrial settings, where it's a very different business case around the high temperature heat and steam versus just electricity. What will be really critical here is the private sector moving forward and identifying what designs they feel most confident in and hopefully working together. Because the easiest way to get up to that call it five to 10 is to pull together a buyer's club. And that doesn't necessarily just have to be utilities. And I hope that also you have a number of tech companies, for example, who just have such enormous needs for clean 24 seven power. And even if they're not interested in being in the business of operating or, or owning reactors, that there might be a way to match some of that cash and demand from the tech companies to be able to help pull some of the utilities and other project developers over the line. And the, the last point I'll make there is just that I think that another piece of the nuclear ecosystem that might be missing to ensure that we can deliver on some of that promise is this developer model that for a number of reasons, including huge tax credits, renewable portfolio standards, et cetera, one of the things that allowed wind and solar to take off at scale was a developer model where Folks were able to take on the risk, manage the construction, and hand over an asset to a utility to operate. And historically, we have had utilities lean in and take that role. And, you know, another lesson from the Vogel experience was that, you know, I remember folks at the site saying, you know, we wish Southern had leaned, leaned in earlier to take on this owner role versus the technology vendor looking to provide that. Obviously, Westinghouse is an incredible technology designer, has a great design. Historically, it's been utilities taking that owner or project manager role and identifying if there could be, you know, a developer model where folks are willing to take on that construction risk, learn all those mega project lessons and develop those assets to risk averse utilities um, or other customers who don't necessarily, uh, you know, industrials, tech companies, other folks, I think could be key to unlocking a huge amount of that demand. In order to ride experience curves like the one the solar industry has gone down, we need a way to benefit from the experience we're getting. First, by actually starting to build the reactors and then setting up a model that ensures that the entity that's doing it, whether utility or developer, is actually applying and building on that experience by building multiple. 
For his part, James Kralenstein thinks that we just need some bravery to kick us off, but agrees strongly that the tech industry has a role to play here, if different than the one Julie proposed, and that we actually need to get a developer model in place to compound the learnings across different projects. What I would like us to see is more of the focus of the smart, younger, sort of disruptive thinking people working on not building new reactor designs, but actually on doing the financial engineering that is necessary in the current ecosystem that we live in to actually allow a new build to happen, but also to be doing something like stuff like software development for you know ensuring new nuclear power plant builds are actually on time and on budget. And there's all sorts of you know places where you could talk about it, from everything from CAD to building information management, supply chain management, um, but also really getting a developer model really deployed for the nuclear industry. One of the biggest problems that we have is that if you're a utility that orders an AP-1000, okay, you're gonna go to Westinghouse, they're gonna provide the nuclear steam supply system. You're gonna go to Bechtel that um, is gonna do the, manage the construction force, do, you know, build the the turbine island and 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 do a lot of the actual system integration that is necessary but you don't ultimately have a developer who's going to just sort of take it from there you're going to have to build up your own shop inside your utility to basically manage the construction manage those contractors just like when you're building a renovation on your house, right? You need to manage your architect, manage your contractor. That's a full-time job. And what we found in my historical analysis of what's gone right and what's wrong in nuclear power plants is yes, having a good vendor for the nuclear steam supply system, super important. Yes, the best contractor and architect and engineer, super important. But if you don't have the good management structure as the actual ultimate customer and off-taker of that plant, you're not going to have a successful build. And the problem is, is we don't have a way to scale that in the United States because each utility is relatively small, right? It's serving a geographic area. It's not a national utility. So you can get even build a couple of them like Southern Company just did. You're not going to be able to immediately translate those lessons learned to a totally different, you know, region a thousand miles away, there's going to be a totally different utility. And that lack of us being able to scale that developer model, that's where we really need to be working here, is actually making sure we don't have another Vogel in summer and making sure we have an actual model that is conducive to less to uh, capitalizing on the lessons learned. So I feel like I'm a little bit on the outside here. You, Julie, uh, James have all mentioned this developer model. I'm familiar with... a real estate developer, solar developer, just for the avoidance of doubt here, what is the developer model in nuclear? Yeah, it's really just someone who's going to bring everything together and be responsible for the project beginning to end. So this is everything from the vendors, like the like dealing with Westinghouse, buying the reactor from them, right? Um, and all the other material, the concrete, all, just helping source all of the things that are needed to build. It's, it's the actual crews themselves everything from like the engineers to the welders to to all of these you know hundreds if not thousands of people needed to build a plant and then it's definitely the financing the bankers um how you get all that managed and then project management overall make sure this project actually stays on budget and on on timeline and is this like in, in real estate development where you know, the person is just saying like, kind of, I own the project. So, hey, utility, I'm going to be responsible for this. I'm going to make sure it gets built on your site. 
I'm going to the banks, I'm going to the bankers, but I'm also putting the cash up myself and it's on me? Or are they more of the role of a project manager on anything, even including the things that touch finance, but they're not actually putting up their own money? It's definitely a hybrid and there's probably a few different flavors for how this plays out. But developers are definitely skin in the game, taking their own risk here. If you think about a solar developer, for example, um, they are, they're here to make some money, but they're also going to put up some money to go into the project to make it happen. They're also going to get loans, right, from banks and hopefully at favorable rates because they have a, have a track record, for example, of doing this. Um, so they're, they're putting it all together. They're putting some skin in the game. Um, but they're also going out and getting loans, getting financing from elsewhere. I think the core the core point that I think Julie and James are trying to make here is that utilities just don't have the skill set to be this project manager, this financier, you know, overseeing a, a massive construction project like this, because this is not what they do in their day to day. And if it's something they're only going to do on average, what, every 40 years, 50 years, um, you know, if you worked at the utility, you'd do this once in your career. And we all know the first time you do something is certainly not going to be the most efficient way to do it. You, you know, you're not going to know what you're doing. And so the the benefit here is that a developer is going to go from utility to utility, from place to place, and run their same playbook and get better and better and better at it and more efficient at it. The developer model just seems to make so much sense. It's like kind of how any other industry in the world would do it. The point that you make about a utility that does other things and sure has done uh, gas plants and has done coal plants and whatever. Like It's not like this is the first time they've ever built a plant. But nuclear is its own unique animal. There's all the regulatory stuff. And so it does make sense that you have somebody who just does this over and over and over again and gets better and better and better at it. I just said a word, though, that I thought that I would be saying a lot more and that I thought that we'd be hearing a lot more from people, frankly, which is the regulators or the NRC, the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, or NEPA, the National Environmental Policy Act. Like, these are the things from the outside that I thought if you said, like, go to 10 people in the nuclear industry and say, like, what needs to change? Their answer would, I would have thought, would all have been like, we need to get rid of the NRC. It would have been, would have been like the Vivek Ramaswamy approach to this whole thing. Like, get rid of the NRC. NEPA needs to go. Like, we'd be fine if we just didn't have this regulation in the way. And like, practically none of the answers that we've gotten have included regulation. And like, maybe it's it's certainly not as big a part as I thought it was, but is there like some hesitancy? Like it has just been so long in the nuclear industry that people have been bummed out about how the regulatory process works that like they just don't want to put blame outside themselves anymore. It just seems absolutely crazy to me that you can have this thing that can delay projects like and make them go twice as long and have full security teams and at, at LARA, like, you know, as low as reasonably achievable radiation, like all these things that clearly make it more expensive and slower to build. And nobody's talking about that. Why do you think that is? I don't know. I think it's probably just out of vogue now. Like that was just been the answer for too long and people want to be contrarian and come up with something else, right? Uh, no, but in all seriousness, I, I actually do still think there is plenty wrong with the way that uh, nuclear is regulated. And it is it is absolutely contributing to cost. I don't think anyone would actually disagree with that. I think people, honestly, just probably got a little sick and tired of talking about it because nothing's changing. Um, I should say that that said, Congress is actually pretty aware of, of the NRC and the slowness there. There has been some regulation, for example, just a couple of years ago about uh, the NRC. Uh, 
basically commanding the NRC to come up with an advanced nuclear framework, for example. So like people, people are, people are aware of it. It's definitely an issue. Um, I think people have just been unaware of all the other stuff going on, the financing questions, the, all the construction challenge, just like the poor project management, because we haven't done these in decades. Right. Um, so I think it, it's more just like, let's, let's round, round this out. Let's, let's balance this all out. It's, it's, there isn't just one thing to blame, unfortunately. There, there really are just, there's several pieces that are all compiling to making this, um, you know, just a real economics issue. It does make sense to say, like, to get to the point where you're not going to the regulators or you're not going to Congress right after having done Vogel and had all of these overruns, like, above and beyond anything that is the NRC's fault and saying, like, look, it's it's their fault. I think it's a lot more credible if you can get five, 10, whatever number it is, projects under your belt and say like, we are good at this. We want to b- bring this cheap, clean energy to the rest of the country. Look at how much we've improved. And like, here is the bottleneck. Like this is the last 50% that we want to take out of this. Like now you really need to help us because people love getting this cheap electricity. I don't think they have maybe that, uh, that leg to stand on right now to go fight that fight. What's interesting is that the only person we spoke to who banged the drum on making specific policy changes and using regulation as something that really was in the way was fossil future author Alex Epstein, who you met on the last episode. Maybe because he comes from outside of the nuclear industry, he's willing to put more blame on the regulators and propose a solution. So, but one thing I've been looking at lately is you know, what parts of the nuclear code are worse. And one of the things that's come up, in, at least in my initial research, is that parts 50 and 53 are a lot of what's at issue. So part 50 applies to all nuclear and and it's, it involves things like, L, like linear no threshold, just making it prohibitively expensive to build this stuff. And one of the things that's at issue right now is part 53 is trying to set potentially new standards for new nuclear and there's the, and have a different kind of risk model. So instead of instead of having the goal be minimize nuclear risk infinitely at all costs, actually do a proper relative risk assessment. So look at well what's the risk of this versus other things and then part of doing a proper relative risk risk assessment is not only that it's that it's relative to others, but that it actually is based on science. But that would require jettisoning LNT in particular. So the idea would be to change part 50, but maybe the most or a really crucial battle is as they're thinking about rules for part 53, how to make them reject a lot of what is in part 50. So at least the new nuclear has a shot at doing things. So that's, that's, um, and I'm talking to some Congress uh, people and there's a lot of interest in it. Alex's proposal makes a lot of sense. Let's get rid of the do anything possible to reduce any risk of radiation without weighing this against the alternatives. What's difficult is that anyone who gets close enough to the minutia of part 53 language is probably working in the nuclear industry themselves. And they're likely trying to ingratiate themselves with the NRC, not be overly critical of the existing regulation. Whether driven by a complacent nuclear industry focused on regulatory capture or just a stagnant industry without much of a lobbying arm motivated to push for change, there hasn't historically been much of a push for NRC reform. I'm not going to get the exact quote right, but it's something along the lines of like, once a regulation goes into place, like it's there forever, it's impossible to to turn it back. And so I don't think mm. that's going to be the first- The ratchet, the regulatory ratchet. The regulatory <laughs> ratchet. And so I, I doubt that'll be the first thing. I hope that's a thing that, that happens sooner. I actually, in the conversations that we've had, I think my favorite idea 
that I've heard uh, in our conversations, maybe with anybody, certainly with, with you, is just like, we have all of these coal plants being decommissioned over the next few years. And you have this labor force that's going to be out of work. You have these facilities that aren't fully plug and play, but like certainly better adapted to nuclear than like just a totally greenfield site. And I think because these people are going to be out of work and because they're like kind of sympathetic to, to Congress people around the country and because these coal plants are spread out. My grandfather was a coal worker. Like, I, I actually wonder, I actually wonder if coal plants um, that are scheduled for decommissioning are the answer here. We have almost 30% of coal plants today, which amounts to about 60 gigawatts of power, which that's the equivalent to basically 60 gigawatt scale plants, um, are scheduled to retire by 2035, so about 10 years from now. This is an opportunity that's ripe for nuclear. There's a lot of infrastructure already in place, especially those transmission lines, which actually, as we know, are some of the hardest things to permit. But you also have other the cooling facilities and other infrastructure there already in existence. And then, as you mentioned, you have the workforce there that's about to lose thousands and thousands of jobs. Um, they are certainly not afraid of having a power plant in their backyard. It's not going to be like, I, I doubt there would be any sort of NIMBY movement against this, right? Um, in fact, this is actually a, a cleaner, cleaner version of power. I think the big question will be, uh, why will these questions not go natural gas, right? Which are cheaper and easier to build. So this is, I think, what we're up against. I think there's a lot of potential here. Um, and I wonder if it really is about government incentives here. The utilities or the developers who are working with the utilities need to be incentivized to build clean, firm power, not just another natural gas plant. And we do know subsidies work. I mean, we saw solar and wind developers benefit pretty, pretty greatly from tax credits and other subsidies that actually made that renewables build out possible. And uh, once we develop this know-how on building nuclear and we can we can ease people into that with some of these subsidies, I wonder if if that maybe is what gets the flywheel spinning again. Yeah. I mean, I I love that one. I think for all of the reasons that that you said, it's practical, it's practical, it's palatable. We need to replace that energy somehow, and we need to avoid killing towns and putting the people out of the work. And and nuclear could solve all of that. I also, what I really like about it is, you know, we've talked about the diffusion of popular support that there's a lot of people who kind of like nuclear, but this could be a constituency that is like a small group of vocal people who really, really want nuclear because they want jobs and they want their towns to be cleaner and they want to be part of building the future. So this feels like the right constituency to maybe push for uh, nuclear to, to replace it. Before we wrap up, we've heard a, lunch, a bunch of practical ideas today and we'll, we'll kind of go over them. But I want to give some airtime to some like big, bold ideas, whether from private industry or the government. Nick Torin, for example, thinks that we should build reactor pretty much gigafactories. My other favorite idea and um, uh, is to build a, a factory of large reactors, a shipyard factory. So basically, and this has been seriously considered to the point that they actually bought and installed the world's biggest gantry crane in Jacksonville, Florida for a, giga, a reactor gigafactory that was gonna make four gigawatt scale PWRs per year on floating platforms, deliver them by floating them out. And they got a license from the NRC in 1982 to build the first eight of them, which is a story nobody's heard. And like that kind of thing, they were interested in that for, you know, again, that's like large modular reactors. <laughs> Henry Ford comes to the AP-1000. Um, 
that's a really interesting idea. And like, if we wanted to get really serious about decarbonizing quickly, that's the kind of thing we should be looking into. It's like bringing Henry Ford factory production at shipyard scale to floating reactors. And the fact that it's been licensed before in like a fairly modern regulatory regime sounds crazy because it's the 80s, but that's fairly modern in the nuclear world. I love that from Nick. I mean, gigafactories are obviously super expensive to set up, but we know the federal government has the money to do it. I mean, we just spent $400 billion on the Inflation Reduction Act. And imagine how many gigafactories you could get for that amount. Um, but, but in all seriousness, we, we know the government does have levers that it can pull to encourage the development of industries. And if it feels something is important to the country, it will back it up. I mean, we saw this for the renewables build out with the tax credits there. And the CHIPS Act, what we're trying to do right now for reshoring things like silicon chip manufacturing. We also talked to the Andreessen Horowitz American Dynamism partner, David Yulovich. He's an investor in a lot of those hard tech, kind of, you know, American reshoring type of activities. Um, we talked to him about this exact topic, and he thinks that the federal goal also can play more of an active role here in accelerating nuclear. And I think that would be an incredible place for government to play a role. And they can do that in the form of legislation, in the terms of, uh, in the form of funding, um, in the form, and, and I don't think it's just tax credits. They need to do something more directed and more, more proactive. Like I said, like a, a nuclear version of the CHIPS Act, um, a changing to the way the DOE and the, and the NRC operate um, by mandating a certain number of licenses be granted per year. Um, or that a certain number of new designs be granted per year or categories of designs. Uh, I mean, I think those are all, there's all kinds of options. In fact, there's, there's probably lots of really good ways to do this. And there is some of this happening already, but I think we could, we could 10 exit or 100 exit. And I think that would be a great place for government. Uh, I think a terrible place for government is when they do things that constantly reaffirm and, and just go back to the existing incumbents um, if they were to go back to like Warehouser or somebody and say, okay, you're the you're the anointed energy provider for the country, I don't think that would be a very good outcome. I think what we really wanted to see is exactly, you know, actually I think COVID was a good example of this. You want to see something where a framework is created and says like like for the for the vaccine um, for COVID, it's like anyone who comes up with a vaccine that's workable, we will guarantee you the revenue, we will guarantee it. Like, you know, if you look at what happened in Europe, they went into full bureaucracy mode. You look at what happened in China, they went into full authoritarian mode. Like we went into full capitalist mode. And we just said like, like let's just like let everything blossom and see what works. And then we will support anyone that makes something work. And I think with energy, you do the same thing, whether it's fusion, whether it's fission, whether it's solar, whether it's battery systems, whether it's energy transportation, you just say like, let's let them all go and let's see what happens. USA, I love that answer personally for a couple of reasons. First, it combines the government's might with the entrepreneurial spirit that makes America such an engine of innovation and implementation when we when we do it right. And it does it by flipping how we think about nuclear. Not as something to be approved when the NRC feels like it, but something that the NRC has to approve every year. Regulation isn't bad. It's a necessary part of capitalism. And in nuclear's case, it's made it super, super safe and super reliable. I mean, the reason that plants run 99.9% .9 of the time and they're so safe is in part due to the regulation. But the regulatory process has to be sped up to both unlock innovation and bring down construction timelines. Second, it focuses on the thing that we're trying to do here, change the narrative around nuclear. 
Permanuclear is an atrociously obvious position, and we do need to figure out all the very practical steps that need to be taken to bring down the cost of nuclear buildouts. But narrative can be the neutron fired at the uranium atom to catalyze a chain reaction. It can spark the energy needed for people, politicians, utilities, entrepreneurs, and developers alike to go out and do the hard things required to secure an energy abundant tomorrow. It reminds me of what Josh Wolf was talking about. More than anyone we've spoken to, he thinks that despite nuclear's growing popularity, popularity is still the biggest lever that we have. It's almost like oil and gas companies and Putin sigh up the world into hating nuclear energy, and now we basically need to sigh up them back to about being excited about it. And I think we're on our way. Uh, when we asked Josh about the biggest remaining hurdles, here is what he said. Uh, the practical one is really popularity because politicians in their self-interest want to get elected. They need the popularity of the people. And if something is not popular with people, they're not going to talk about it. Uh, so that's number one. Number two is capital markets and debt financing. But if you can reduce the regulatory restrictions on this, if you can increase the popularity, what happens when you increase popularity, and it's true of any sector in any market, particularly new ones or newly discovered ones, is people release capital. They, they speculate that lowers the cost of capital, that increases more experimentation. Yes, you get more failure, but you also get more progress. I asked Josh about how if he were the director of the CIA, he'd actually start a movement that forces change in Congress and the NRC to get more reactors built. Well, the two animating factors for anybody, and particularly if you were an Intel operative, are um, motivated greed and motivated fear. So the fear piece appeals more to a nationalistic instinct. It's something that in recent testimony I gave before Congress, uh, China is building very aggressively in nuclear. And you'd say, well, that's great. It's good for the environment. And it is. I'd rather see China build nuclear than continue building coal as they are because they've become the world's largest polluter. And so coal bad, nuclear better. But one of the things that China is doing is exporting that technology. And they're exporting it to effectively um, states that will become increasingly dependent on China. Now, why do we care about that? It cost us about $20 billion to build the most recent two gigawatt power plant in Georgia. So call it $10, $11 billion per gigawatt. Uh, China is doing it for $2 billion, for a tenth of the cost. And so if you're uh, sort of almost like a vassal state and China says, and says, hey, we'll lend you the money, we'll debt finance it, and we'll build it for you. Now you're dependent upon them for the next uh, few decades. Uh, you've got to pay back that debt or they're going to shut off your electricity. You're dependent upon them for the fuel and uh, the servicing and the maintenance and all of that. And so all of that is, is I think, um, something that national security concerns should care deeply about. So, so that's one aspect. Uh, and that's sort of the fear aspect. The greed aspect is you just need typically one story for people to rally around, one narrative of success. That could be a public company. Uh, it could be somebody that made an investment in uh, existing utility, like uh, Exelon Chicago or somebody that is just seeing runaway success that suddenly people galvanize around. And then the third thing I would do is just um, what the agency and Intel community did during the Cold War is uh, look at the mediums of influence and start to get really interesting, attractive people. So those would be, you know, little messages inside of books. We have a whole genre of, of climate fiction. Um, you'd want to uh, sort of uh, sprinkle in some pro-nuclear sentiment there. You'd want artists perhaps to galvanize around a big concert series where they're promoting elemental energy. 
almost like a live aid kind of event. You watch some of these influencers, which I didn't even think she was real, but Isabel, uh, I think it's Bamanco. Uh, and it's just like, yeah, it's just amazing. And uh, so what she's been doing is great. And we have new mediums to attract attention. And those are the vectors that I'd be playing on, sort of neutral influence, uh, positive attraction of greed through markets and then institutional and national sentiment around fear, particularly as, as China uh, is exporting nuclear reactors to African countries and South America. And just to be clear, this podcast, Age of Miracles, is not a CIA PSYOP. Or is it? So maybe it does come back to narrative in a more important way than maybe I wanted to admit, or at least I wanted to go explore everything else. I think the point the points that Josh make make a lot of sense, even kind of on their own, but they also tie back into a lot of the things that we've talked about before. I think these are movements that are needed in a lot of cases. Certainly the developer model is somebody responding to an economic opportunity, but to change regulation, you're going to need popular support. I love Julie's idea of having insurance for cost overruns. But if you want the federal government to do that while they are getting more supportive of nuclear, asking them to do something that's putting more federal budget at risk to support more nuclear demands a lot of popular support. If you can get cost overrun insurance in place, then you can get utilities or developers to order more plants. You can order them over and over and over again and kind of come down that curve. Uh, and then get to the point where it's cheap enough that you don't necessarily need the government to, to play an active role anymore. I do think that we're in this spot now, though, where we're a little bit stuck and we need something to unstick us. And maybe that popular support and changing the narrative, as Josh suggests, allows us to get a thing that we need, like just the one push that we need to set the flywheel off from the government in order to go down that cost curve. We spent a lot of this episode talking about economics, but you know, it's funny. I, I wonder if it it is this narrative vector that could come in and be that paradigm shift to actually get the flywheel going. You know, is it, again, the people who are demanding their coal plant be turned into a nuclear plant or the people who are out there asking for NRC reform or something else that can just catalyze some of this? You know, it could be it could be that the, the narrative change is, is really what um, what allows this to to move forward. Maybe in conclusion here, um, what you know, where 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 has all of this led us? I think it, I think we're we're realizing that nuclear is neither impossible nor inevitable, and that it actually exists in this in between space. And and it's it's about what actions people take today. And again, going back to the narrative, is it is it perhaps you know going to come from that direction that allows us to catalyze the flywheel moving forward? Um, it's it's about the policy that gets set, the decisions that utilities make, the risk that entrepreneurs are going to take, or even new developers, <laughs> and the, the collective voice of people that are all going to impact how this plays out. The big takeaway for me, and an important lesson that I think can be applied to a number of hard tech industries, is an unsexy one. After that initial spark, whatever gets that flywheel going, and I think narrative's a part of that, I think government has a role to play, I think developers and entrepreneurs have a role to play, we also just need to get better at the things that we already know how to do by practicing. Pick a design, figure out the right developer model, and practice over and over and over again. Build 10 of the same reactors until we get really good, and then build more. Export the reactors and our expertise in building them around the world to the countries that could benefit most from nuclear. But you can't take the techno-optimists out of me that easily. 
a lot of the folks we've spoken to so far have been on Team Large Reactor. They've colored the way that we look at the world. They've convinced me that we need to go big. But there's an awful lot of capital and an awful lot of smart people who believe that we can innovate our way around all the mess by designing and building lots and lots of advanced and small modular reactors. We're going to need a mix of large and small reactors, existing designs, advanced designs. So far, we've focused on large reactors. But over the next couple of episodes, we're going small. We'll talk to the people trying to build the future, the nuclear entrepreneurs with fresh approaches to old problems like reactor design, fuel sources, and pass to regulation. Thank you for listening and watching to this episode of Age of Miracles. If you like what you hear, please rate, subscribe, and share. And if you're feeling really generous, tell us what you think in the comments. Plus, we have a ton of resources and references in our resource hub if you want to go deeper. And we've linked them all in the show notes below. See you next week.